Hello, everyone, and welcome to BibleQuest.tv. And I'm getting an echo here, which I was hoping not to get. So if you're uh, welcome, everybody, to BibleQuest. And we're glad you're joining us. If you're coming in on the, the Zoom app, um, please be sure to use the Q&A button. A box down there, it'll pop up the window, and we want you to give us your text. If you have a question or a comment you want to make at relating to what we're talking about, or even things that we're not talking about, we want we want to invite you always to be asking questions and try to address your questions during the program, or at least maybe the next one. Um, and if you're coming in through YouTube, the YouTube channel, you have a text window there, and um, we'll go ahead and pick up your comments from there as well. I'll, let me bring in the crew. We've got uh, Stephen Rouse down in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. How you doing, Stephen? Doing well, Drew. Welcome, everybody. I said down in. Are you down in, I think you're southwest. I might ask this a number of times, but southwest. <laughs> yeah, so I'm in Camp Hill, just across the river. I mean, we're just 10 minutes from downtown. Okay. I'm way up in the northeastern part of Pennsylvania, so I don't know how far it is to get to you. But anyway, we're glad you're here today. We have Jeff from Exit. Hey, it's just funny, you know, as well as we know each other and as often as we do this webcast and talk about where we each are, it's just funny how little idea we have where exactly where each one is. You would think we would know this by now. Yeah, yeah. Um, you do the Wednesday program and Joe is now further away. He's way up in New York State. Do you have the same problem there too? No, I know where he is. Yeah. <laughs> Something about Pennsylvania, it's just too big of being, you know, grown up in in New Jersey all the time. It's a small little state. Now I'm in Pennsylvania and it's all over the place. And let's see who we got uh, Scott, our program director. Good to see you, Scott, from Gettysburg. We're doing good. I know where Gettysburg is. It's way down southeast, I think. <laughs> and Jonathan Southwest. What's that? Southwest from you. You're southwest from? I guess everybody's southwest from me. Yeah, yeah. I'm, we're pretty much in the middle of the state, just above the Mason Dixon. Why did I think well, you're on the east side? Okay. And I've been, I've been through Gettysburg years ago. And Jonathan, our web engineer, we're glad to have you here, Jonathan, also down in Gettysburg, right? Yeah, that's right. Yep. All right. Good to see you. Are you hearing this echo? I'm hearing it. You do hear it? A little bit. Yeah, I don't want to fix that after we get going here. And we're going to get going. Scott, why don't you take over? What are we doing today? A little different today, All right? right? What I'm going to do today, I didn't have a question on the docket yet. And so, audience, if you've got a question, uh, get it in. If we don't have time to do it today because we're going to be doing something else when we can uh, get to it next week. But what we're going to do today, and we'll probably be doing this off and on, is have one of us uh, share a presentation with the others and with the audience, and we've asked Jeff to do that today on the subject of Nicodemus. And so Jeff's going to lead us in that discussion, and uh, we'll turn it over to him. So Nicodemus' conversation with Jesus is the context where we see a couple of famous passages. What are the two most famous quotes out of this conversation? You must be born again. That's one. John 3.16, God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but rather less than life. Yeah, those are very famous, but I doubt that there's very very many people in the religious world who realize they're part of the same conversation. We'll see that. The text starts out, says there was a man of the Pharisees, 
John sees it important as important to tell us Nicodemus was a Pharisee. What does that tell us? What was the character of the Pharisees? One, they tended to be self-righteous, and, and that's really a description we see in scriptures. What's a good passage that would illustrate what we mean by self-righteousness in connection with Pharisees? Hey, Jeff, are you wanting to share your screen? Because we can't see your screen right now. Oh, yeah, I do want to share my screen. Good, thank you. All right, all right, so there we go. How's, how's that? Are we seeing it? There we go. Yeah, that's good. All right. So we got a man of the Pharisees, and Pharisees typically are pictured as self-righteous in the New Testament. What's a passage that would illustrate self-righteousness in connection with Pharisees? When Jesus compares the Pharisee and the publican praying in Luke 18. Yeah. So it starts out, Jesus introduces, or Luke introduces the parable, saying Jesus told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. How does the story that Jesus goes ahead to tell characterize a Pharisee as self-righteous and as somebody who views somebody else with contempt? Well, I'll answer that question. (laughs) The Pharisee in the scenario that Jesus describes stood praying thus to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He really kind of looks down at the tax collector, and he considers himself very righteous. That's, that's self-righteousness. And, and then in this story, what do we find out about the tax collector? He stands himself. He won't, even, he, he won't even lift his eyes to heaven, but says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Yes. So who ended up being reckoned as just in the eyes of Jesus? The tax collector who humbled himself. So this is a, a lesson for us. If, if we think that we are righteous in our own right, we deserve justification because we're so good, we miss the point. That's Pharisees. There's another passage that I think well illustrates self-righteousness. Uh, you guys should be thinking about the same passage I am because we previewed this before the webcast. <laughs> Let's just give it away. Is he throwing us under the bus? <laughs> yeah, we just got thrown under the bus. Luke, Luke 15, sure. And I think it's really important that we notice the first two verses of Luke 15 because it sets the stage. Um, this is why we have these three parables that are in Luke 15. All the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him, Jesus, to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man, talking about Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus tells three parables. What are the three parables? Lost, lost coin, lost son. And what do they all have in common? Something that's lost and is found, and there is joy, happiness, rejoicing. So the point, the first point, of course, is the Lord's desire for those who are lost to save them, as opposed to the Pharisees' attitude: we're righteous, and those people are the scum of the earth. We don't want anything to do with them. The Lord came to seek and to save that which is lost. But the third parable adds an extra element that is not in the first two. And what's that extra element? The bad attitude of the older brother. Yeah. So there's a younger brother who asks for his inheritance first, and he gets it. He he goes and he wastes it, and he he ends up in a desperate situation. Then he realizes he'd be better off as one of his father's servants, and so he goes back, and his father receives him warmly, rejoicingly, happy to have his son back. And the older brother sees this, and there's a, a feast and a fatted calf that's killed and all of that to celebrate the return of the of the one that was lost. 
And the older brother answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you never have given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Who does the older brother represent? Going back to the first two verses, the, the thing that occasioned these three parables. The fact that Jesus was eating with, and in a sense celebrated with, but eating with these people who had done wrong before. And who complained about that? The Pharisees. And so the Pharisees are the older brother. The older brother represents yeah. the Pharisees. So you get this self-righteous attitude, this characteristic of the Pharisees. The second thing we want to note about Pharisees, they tended to be status-seeking. And what's a passage that immediately comes to mind in connection with status-seeking Pharisees? Matthew 23, where Jesus condemns them for seeking the chief seats at the feasts and loving these religious titles, father, teacher, things like that. Yeah, they love the place of honor at banquets, the chief seats in the synagogues, the respectful greetings in the marketplace, being called rabbi by men. What does rabbi mean? Teacher. Teacher. Yeah. This is kind of interesting because Jesus is going to end up saying to Nicodemus, are you a teacher of the law and you don't understand these things? So Nicodemus was a teacher, and he was a ruler of the Jews, and he was a Pharisee. And what we're seeing is what was typical of the Pharisees. So Nicodemus, a Pharisee, comes to Jesus by night and says, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. I would say that's a step up, a a step better than some of the Pharisees, wouldn't you? Yeah, certainly. He's one to confess that. Some of the Pharisees, when they'd hear about Jesus' miracles, they would say, He did it by the power of Beelzebub. He did it by the power of Beelzebub, the devil. Nicodemus says, okay, you got to be a teacher come from God because of the signs you do. But Jesus' response is almost, at first glance, a non sequitur. Jesus answered and said, I say to you, unless one's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So it's an interesting question. Why is that a good response to somebody who says, you must be from God. And, and, and I think in part it has to do with the fact Jesus is talking to a man who's a Pharisee, and he is to some degree characterized by some of the same thing the Pharisees typically were characterized by. He came, after all, to Jesus. He came by night. Why would he come by night? He doesn't want to be seen. John 12, verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Yes. I've heard people suggest that we really don't know why it went by night. Maybe that's why it went by night. I think it's clear that's why it went by night. But there's this passage in John 12, And then there's also the passage at the end of John 7 where the leaders have sent them in to arrest Jesus, and they didn't. And when they come back, with Nicodemus standing right there with them, they say, have any of us believed? Yeah. And they wouldn't have said that if Nicodemus was known to be a believer. And Nicodemus tries to go, well, should we judge him before? He tries to be neutral, and they spin on him. So it's clear why he'd come by now. Yeah, Nicodemus does seem to make progress. And by the end of the Gospel of John, we see Nicodemus being more bold. Uh, But at this point, John saw fit to say he was a Pharisee and he came by night. 
And there seems to be a point to that. So, all right, then you think about, Nicodemus says, you must be a teacher come from God. And Jesus says, you need to be born again or from above. We'll talk about that in a minute. But what I think Jesus is doing is he's talking to this man who has come to him by night, trying to kind of keep it on the down low. And that's evidence this man needs to start over. He needs to become a new kind of person. He needs to become different than the status-seeking, self-righteous Pharisees, of which he is one. He needs a new birth. All right, so uh, now let's talk a little bit about this statement, you must be born again. Truly, truly, I send you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You guys probably are aware the word translated again can also be translated what? From above. From above. Or de nuevo. Say what? (laughs) Oh, de nuevo. (laughs) Yes, Spanish, that's right. Thank you for that. (laughs) So uh, the word actually, it sometimes means again. It sometimes means from above. It sometimes means from long ago or from the beginning. Rarely in the New Testament does it mean again. Maybe only once does it mean again in the New Testament. And outside of the New Testament, most of the time it doesn't mean again. What about in this context? Well, if we think about the idea of from above, John 19, 11, Jesus says to Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Clearly, that's what it means there, right? This is the same yeah. word. In, in oh. John, say what? I said, okay, I didn't realize that. That's, that's interesting. That's John 19, 23, when they, tear, when they cast lots for the garment because it, it was woven in one piece from top to bottom. So you wouldn't want to tear it because it'll just unravel then. That's the word that's translated here either from a, a, a above or again, same word. Uh, John three thirty one. not the conversation with Nicodemus, but in the same chapter, um, he who comes... From above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. Same word. And then in the context, above really seems to, to fit better. Uh, the context is, is really kind of, some, in part, summed up in the last part of verse 31. He who comes from heaven is above all. And Jesus is going to be described in the conversation with Nicodemus as the one who is from above and is offering him a birth that is from above. Um, He's going to say to Nicodemus, if I told you earthly things and you did not believe, how you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So Jesus is focused on convincing Nicodemus that he needs to become a new kind of person from above, a spiritual rebirth that's not earthly. But how did Nicodemus understand it? Again, can a man return to his mother's womb a second time? Yeah, clearly. And somebody's got it. Read John chapter 3, verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, here's a good point just in our studying the Bible with people. Jesus could have gone into a, he could have chased this rabbit and and gone off to discuss about a born born again or born from above. Say, no, 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 That's, that's not usually what the word means. It really mostly means above and gotten all hung up on that word. But did Jesus do that? Jesus didn't quibble. The birth is both again and from above. If I'm going to have this spiritual birth that's from heaven, that's different than the one that I had, in my case, 61 years right. ago. <laughs> so it, it's again. Right. <laughs> so Jesus just right. goes on with it to make his point about a spiritual birth. 
and he explains the spiritual nature of the birth. And, and there are two points we want to notice here. It occurs at baptism, and it's from the Spirit. So let's get John chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Titus chapter 3, I think, is, is parallel to this. In Titus chapter 3, Scott, why don't you take us through this? I've got it on screen. All right. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of any works of righteousness that we had done. And I'll just interject there. That's, that's uh, a point against the self-righteousness that we're talking about. Uh, if, if you want to think about a justification that's based on works we had done, that'd be self-righteousness, but that's not what it is. And then it goes on. He goes on to tell us, but by his mercy, he saved us through the, all right, uh, all right, yeah, there I see it. But uh, he saved us, not, uh, but according to his mercy, through the water of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This Spirit he poured on us richly through Jesus Christ. And it goes on, it, it talks about our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. But right there in the middle, you see the phrase, through the water of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's a spiritual birth. That's that's talking about something that's from above, and it involves the water and the Spirit. And so you see those ideas in John 3, and, and Jesus elaborates. Uh, he talks about what's born of the flesh and what's born of the Spirit, and he compares it to the wind. What's the comparison with the wind about? He says, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. Well, there's some wordplay going on there, right? Because it's the Greek, in Greek, the word for spirit and wind are the same word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's that that connection, and I, and and I think it, the point is really fairly simple. He's emphasizing the spiritual nature of this birth, and you think about right. the Pharisees, the status-seeking, self-righteous Pharisees. They were they were hung up in this world, the status symbols of this world, and you can see very clearly which is the chief seat. And, and the large phylacteries and the broadening of the garment borders and all of that kind of thing. But hey, you need something that's not so conspicuous as that, but it's from above. It's a spiritual thing, like the wind. But again, we have this idea from above. And this is the same word that we saw in verse um, 3 when Jesus talked about being born from above. It's fine. It's interesting. Um, in Spanish, you've got de nuevo or arriba. Uh, the same, you've got the same question. So Nicodemus responds, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, What's, what did Jesus ask him? Are you the teacher of Israel? And, and, do not... and see, again, if you've got a Pharisee who thinks of himself, I'm the teacher of Israel. I, and, and tends to have that self-righteous attitude, look down on others, status-seeking. You've got the status. You're the teacher of Israel, but you don't understand these things. You need something you don't have. You need a new birth that is from above. Somebody Was somebody trying to interject something there, or was that my hand I saw? That was your hand, I think, but I just want to remind everyone in the audience Give us your comments, your questions on any of these things that we're talking about. We'd like to have some feedback coming in also. So I'm just reminding you, go ahead and text it in. Go ahead. So, so the point we've got so far is you need to be reborn from above. And, and then Jesus says this, no one has ascended into heaven, 
but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Why is this statement made right here? He's saying, I'm the only access to what's above. You need a birth that's from above. No one's gone up there except the one who came down. That's the Son of Man, the Christ. That's who I am. If you want this birth from above, he's really saying something very similar to what he says in John 14, 6, where he says, I am the the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. All right, so what do we have so far? Man and the Pharisees, they tended to be self-righteous, status-seeking. You need something new. You need something that's from above, something that's spiritual. You need to be a different kind of person. And then he gets into a comparison with Moses. And he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. What's this about? Well, on the cross, he'll be lifted up, raised up from the earth on the cross. And it goes back to an event back in the Old Testament. Yeah, what's the event in the Old Testament that that has a foreshadowing of Jesus being lifted up on the cross? Well, there's this occasion where the people had sinned, and in response to that, God sends these serpents, poisonous snakes among them, and they bite the people, and many people are dying, and they cry out to the Lord, and the Lord... And Moses intercedes for the people, and the Lord directs him there. First, you get on the screen, make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. This is one of those passages that I think people look at sometimes and say, well, this is just more evidence of a capricious, mean-spirited, uh, angry God in the Old Testament. He just flies off the handle, gets mad at his people, and he's going to send serpents among them. And then they say, please don't kill us. He goes, oh, okay, make a bronze serpent. And, and when people look at these stories that way, they miss the point. The story happened in such a way and is told to us in such a way to teach a lesson about the gracious salvation that God is preparing for man. And so we see that when we see this bronze serpent, people were supposed to look at and compare it to Jesus. So what was, what was bringing death to the people? The poisonous snakes. And, and what, how would they be saved? Looking at this bronze serpent on a pole. That, that is the likeness of the thing that was bringing death to them. Mm-hmm. What is it that brings death to us? Sin. Sin. Well, how can we be saved? Looking to Jesus, obeying him. And our sins in his body on the cross, so that we're looking at the likeness of the very thing that's bringing death to us. So in that story... He was made to be sin. Exactly. So that helps complete that parallel. So Jesus calls attention to this parallel in John 3, in verses 14 and 15, when he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up. And those who believe on him will be saved. Now, uh, here's something interesting. Those two verses, verses 14 and 15, about the comparison between the bronze serpent back in the Old Testament and Jesus on the cross, lead directly into the famous John 3.16 passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish. but have Your your, your Bibles, how do your Bibles often do this? Just those of you who have John 3 open, do they put a, a paragraph break between verse 15 and verse 16? Yeah, mine does. Yeah. Most Bibles that I know of do. And a lot of scholars think the conversation ends, the conversation with Nicodemus ends in verse 15. But first of all, 
you get down to verse 22 and you have now after these things, Jesus, that's the natural understanding yes. where the conversation ends. But besides that, look how closely tied verses 14 and 15 are to verse 16. Yeah. You have uh, a reference to the son of man being lifted up. And then in verse 16, him giving his only begotten son. That's right. a reference to the sacrifice. In fact, in the Jewish mind, he gave his only begotten son would take their minds back to Abraham offering his son as a sacrifice. And so then you think about the sacrifice of Jesus. Now remember John is writing this in probably in the nineties, uh, decades after Jesus has died on the cross. And so you see this connection, the son of man being lifted up, the only begotten son being given. And then whoever believes in verse 15. And again, whoever believes in him in verse 16. And then What's the result? What's accomplished? Eternal life. How? Eternal life. So verse 16 is simply an elaboration upon verses 15 and 14 and 15. In 14 and 15, he made the connection between the Old Testament event and himself. And then in verse 16, he elaborates on it. This is yes, really good. And how, how we've all memorized John 3.16, but what's the very first word? Four. Yeah, it's tied to what was before. That is yeah. really good. Yeah, four is telling you what I'm saying is the conclusion based on what I've just said. Yeah. How in the world do we break off the conversation with Nicodemus after verse 15? Yeah, and you know what was also interesting is uh, there's a newer translation that translates so loved as uh -huh. lo God loved the world in this way. Mm -hmm. And that may be a better translation. And that also ties into what he's just said, uh, here's the serpent in the wilderness and God loved the world in this way. Mm -hmm. And then he parallels verbally what he's just said about the serpent to be about Jesus. Now the conversation goes on and, and Jesus talks about those who come to the light. When did Jesus, when did Nicodemus come to Jesus? Right. Night. Yeah. So you go back, whoops. It's kind of summing up what we have. We have our three points. First of all, a Pharisee came. Pharisees tended to be self-righteous and status-seeking. Jesus talks about, you need uh, something new. You need something that's from above. You need, a, you need to be made over again spiritually. And then we have, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, the famous statement in, in John 3.16, which is a, a restatement of verse 15. So you see the book of John. It starts out in John chapter 1, the light shining in the darkness, Right? Who's the light that shines in the darkness? Jesus. Jesus. And then you come to chapter three and here's Jesus. I mean, here's Nicodemus. He came by night. And, and then Jesus says in John chapter three, coming down after verse 16, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness. Oh, you've just come by night. <laughs> and then he says, he who practices the truth comes to the light. And, and so now you see how this whole conversation, it's tied together. And then you think about the folly of people who would quote John 3, 16, say, that's all you have to do to be saved. All you have to do is believe. It doesn't matter what you do. It does, you certainly don't have to be baptized. Wait a minute. In this very context, Jesus is saying, you've got to come to the light. You've got to do the truth. And you've got to be born of water and the spirit. That is powerful. It is. Now, we, we wrap it up here. Um, so reviewing, man of the Pharisees came. Jesus says you have to be born from above. 
I'll stick point two A in here when Jesus said, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man, he's saying, I'm the way. Jesus is the way. And then he says, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Nicodemus came in darkness. Don't love the darkness. Come to the light. As we go through the book of John, Scott, you alluded to this earlier, John 7. Get, let's take, take us back to this because you're right. Nicodemus, he puts it out there a little bit. Is this a strong defense of Jesus? No. And again, the context is the, the rulers sent the men to go arrest Jesus. So here they are waiting for him, and they come back and they don't have him. Why don't you have him? And they say, never any man spake like that. This infuriates them, and they said, have any of the rulers believed in it? And at that point, you can see what happens with Nicodemus. He clearly hasn't let everybody know. Right. <laughs> but he also, his conscience won't let him say nothing. Yeah. tries to say something fair and neutral. Maybe we're not being entirely fair to this guy. Yeah, and it's kind of like in politics today. When you got the mob going one way and you try to say something the other, yeah. So he said, our law doesn't judge a man unless it first hears from something. They answered him, and it seems to be a spit because they're angry at these guys. And now they say, you are not also from Galilee, are you? <laughs> and see, that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And I like the last line, everyone, everyone went to his home. So <laughs> they just shut it down, and that yeah. was it. But Nicodemus isn't through trying to come to the light. We get over to John 19, and uh, this is after Jesus has been crucified. And, and it's interesting here, by the way, I'll take that off screen for a second. We'll put it back on screen in just a second. But before we look at what Nicodemus did, there was another man after Jesus was crucified who put himself out there. Who was that? Joseph of Arimathea. And he was a rich man. And he takes the body of Jesus and puts it in his own tomb. Now, I doubt Joseph of Arimathea thought this through in advance. But the fact is, by putting Jesus in his own new tomb, he was putting himself in the line of fire. Because what's going to happen is that tomb is going to turn up empty. And so now there's going to be what happened to the body. And there are going to be various attempts to explain it away. And whose tomb is it? It's Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea's. So he's kind of put himself in a situation. You can imagine people coming to him, what'd you do with the body, Joseph? <laughs> Were you in on some conspiracy to make it look like he was raised? So he puts himself out there. But then it says in John 19, verse 39, beginning right after it mentions Joseph of Arimathea taking the body, it says Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came. What's the also? Along with Joseph of Arimathea. Yeah. yeah bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. So they took, who's the they? Joseph and Nicodemus. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So just as surely as Joseph of Arimathea is out there, so is Nicodemus at this point. Yeah. Hey Jeff, this may, not relate to the, this, this may not relate to the story, but I just realized that 100 pounds of mixture? yeah. That's a lot. What, what do they do with that? Yeah, and I'm not sure what pounds means here. Maybe some of you guys are experts in weights and measures. Um, but th there was a, a lot of, and, and there, there are things in this passage, the reference to the myrrh and the aloes are things that are foreshadowed in the Old Testament. 
That's a lot. But anyway, interesting here that the first time Nicodemus comes by night, this time he comes by day. Ah, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. a good good observation. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, and um, I think that that's a, a valuable little study. Maybe we have some other things we want to go back to and take a look in that. I tried to move it along, make sure we got it in time. We we've only used two thirds of the program up. I think it took me longer when I preached this. <laughs> well, I, I'm really, I'm really impressed. I'm sorry, Scott. I'm really impressed with the connection about that word from above or again, mm-hmm. and tying it in with Jesus. He's the one from above that Nicodemus he admitted and recognized it. I, yeah. I didn't see that before. I wasn't aware of that. And I think a lot of people they say, well, born again or born from above. I think a lot of people just assume it has to be born again because that's the way Nicodemus understood it. And then I think a lot of other people just say, well, it's ambiguous. It could be either. But when you look at the whole emphasis of the passage, talking about the one who is from above and the one who has, nobody's descended out of heaven except he, or nobody, yeah, nobody has ascended into heaven except he who descended out of heaven. And, uh, and then you look at the usage of the word, and it really is of the 13 occurrences of the word in the New Testament. There's only one place where you can make a pretty good argument that it means again rather than above. All the others, it, it either means above, from above or it means from long ago, from the beginning. You have my curiosity. Where's that one place where it is again? Galatians 4.9. Um, and I'll flip over there. Galatians chapter 4.9. <coughs> And it's where Paul says, but now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how turn you back again to the, I'm sorry, uh, how turn you back again to the weak and beggarly rudiments where until you desire to be in bondage again. And I'm going to have to pull this up in my Greek text to see. I don't remember which, which it was, which one of those agains in the American standard. I've got it right here. Uh, Galatians four, nine, it's the second uh, it's the last part of that where he says in verse nine, desire to be in bondage over again, uh, where it looks like that that would be a place where you could argue it means again rather than from long ago. You could, the way that's structured in Greek, it'd be possible to make it from long ago or from the beginning to be in bondage from, but probably here it means again. But it definitely doesn't mean from above as it does all those other places. Again. Yeah. We yeah. got some comments coming in. Benjamin writes, in Genesis 1-2, you have water and the spirit represents birth. So there at the beginning of creation, you remember the, the spirit over the water. And then in John 3-5, water and the spirit representing rebirth. And Titus 3, 4 and 5, water and spirit represent regeneration and renewal. By the way, uh, the numerations came later, but it's just easy to remember the connection between John 3.5 and Titus 3.5 because they're both 3.5s. Nice, and it works out that John way. John 3.5. Mm-hmm. Good. Jonathan wrote in Second Corinthians 5.17, uh, and somebody read that passage for us. Second Corinthians 5.17. I'll go ahead and read this comment. The shift in focus is from flesh to spirit for those who have been washed, and the emphasis is recreation. So 2 Corinthians 5.17. Go ahead. For our light affliction, which is for the moment. I'm sorry, I'm in 4.17. 5.17. 5.17. 
where if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, they are become new. And back on the thing about how the Pharisees tended to be external and focused on physical things. If you remember down going farther into Matthew 23, Jesus said, your tithing meant and coming, but you're leaving undone what? Way to your matters mercy. Yeah. yeah, mercy, justice, faith. Think about which of those are more spiritual and which of those are more physical and a little more show off. Yeah, I can see a tenth of the mint <laughs> or, or the anise or the, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, Drew, go ahead. Yeah, Jonathan, um, let's see, that would be Benjamin coming in on our YouTube channel. He made another good comment. Unless I don't think you read this one yet, right? There is a powerful, a powerful parallel that connects Jesus as the creator to Jesus as the one who recreates those who have corrupted creation. Oh, that is interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think, is he probably alluding there to, again, the, the spirit and water in creation and then the spirit and water in the new birth in yeah, John 3? I think so. But I, uh, John, John, uh, John does talk about, the Apostle John talks about Jesus as being the creator. Mm-hmm. And that's also interesting because John started his gospel with a reference to Genesis. In the beginning was the word. Mm-hmm. And, and, and now he's perhaps drawing another parallel the spirit of God hovering over the face of the water at creation and now being born of water and the spirit and being made new, born again, born from above. Thanks for those comments. If we have, if we have a minute, we might just emphasize in that passage in John three sixteen, where God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes on him should not perish, but have eternal life. Then in the context of this study, and, and really just in the, the next few verses immediately thereafter, it becomes clear that belief, as Jesus uses the word, is not just an intellectual acknowledgement that Jesus is the Son of God. It, it really is the idea of trust, putting your trust. We often talk about a synonym for faith in the New Testament is trust. And if Nicodemus is going to believe in the sense that he needs to he's got to put his trust in jesus be willing to come by day as he ultimately does uh do the truth come to the light as it says in those next few verses i think it's also and i'd like to make an observation about go ahead steve go ahead no go ahead ahead. (laughs) so in john 3 16 if you think about this from the mouth of jesus to nicodemus I think that that makes it even more vivid. Jesus knows what he has come to do. And he knows the weakness of Nicodemus's faith. He's come to him by night. He's not ready to confess Jesus, but he's going to tell him what he's going to accomplish. Just like the serpent in the wilderness, God loved the world. Even though the world loved the darkness, God loved the world so much that he gave his son that he whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so I think about that, seeing that with kind of a new perspective, thinking about Jesus saying it to Nicodemus and that Nicodemus will in the end, accept that he'll put his trust in Jesus and receive eternal life. I just think that's powerful. Scott, you were going to say something. Scott, you're frozen. Coming back to the end when Nicodemus does I'm frozen. 
Am I still frozen? No, you're all right now. Somebody unfroze you. Okay. All right. Um, we've got an unstable thing, if you can. Uh, so uh, I think it's amazing there at the end of the Gospel of John that it's Joseph and Nicodemus who step up. Because I want you to look at the inversion. The apostles were all in. They left all and followed Jesus. They were all in. And then when Jesus gives up and he's letting the bad guys win, they had put all their trust in, they felt. And then when Jesus quit, like you see how Peter's scared and he backs up and he denies him and then they're hiding. But the ones who had not been all in, Nicodemus and Joseph, now they step up. And you know, if, if you just thought, not knowing the end of the story, Jesus has been crucified. Who's going to come claim the body? You might think the apostles would. No, most of them are hiding, you know, or are going to be hiding during the next few days. But the two guys who hadn't stepped up before did. So I think it, it's a panic mode and loss of faith on the part of the apostles. But for these other two, I think they realized we didn't do enough. We believed, we saw who he was, we didn't do enough. And how many times has somebody maybe died, a friend of yours died, and you'd been thinking, oh, I meant to talk to them. I meant to go see them at the hospital. And it's like now, I think guilt is motivating them. They're saying, I should have done more. Now I want to do everything I can. Yeah. So while the apostles are running scared, these men finally step up to the plate. One other thing on John 3.16, the only begotten son. The word uh, only begotten that's translated only begotten there is used nine times in the New Testament. It's used by Luke uh, otherwise, but but the other six times it's either used of Jesus or in Hebrews chapter 11, it's used of whom? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, the Isaac, right? Isaac. And so there's a, a little connection. You know, in John 3, you have the connection between Jesus' sacrifice and the serpent on the, on the, the bronze pole. Yeah. Then in verse 16, you've got this connection back to Abraham sacrificing Isaac. The only begotten son, that's the phrase that the Hebrew writer is going to use to describe Isaac, whom Abraham offered on one of the mountains in the land of Moriah, where Solomon's going to end up building the temple in Jerusalem, which is where God's only son is going to be offered. And, and Abraham thought God would raise Isaac from the dead. And figuratively speaking, he got him back from the dead and Jesus comes back from the dead. And so you see uh, those parallels there. Guys, let me take a, take a minute here and make a comment on, think about this story that you're just reading, just from this one chapter and the connections that we're seeing some subtle and some clearly more obvious, right? Um, let me do a plug. We had uh, Dale, your, your, your dad, Dale Smeltzer, did a, a, a recent uh, online <clears throat> Bible study on uh, BibleCourses.online, little plug there. And we have the recording there. And the title of his course was Shadows and, uh, what was it? Shadows and Foreshadows about prophecies. And when you start looking at all of these connections that are very subtle in most cases, and not just a few, but a ton of them. You've got to look at the whole story and say, uh, and, and man made this thing up? It's impossible. This is a, an amazing 
interwoven story from the creation to the new creation, Jesus Christ and his followers. I'm just impressed with it as you bring in all these things together just from this short, short uh, John 3. Mm-hmm. And, and people today are not, they don't know the Bible well enough to be aware of how intricate, intricately it's interwoven. Um, so that's a shame, but we can help educate people. That's right. Yeah. Stephen? Uh, and let me just say, there's a, such a powerful lesson for all of us for, in Nicodemus in our culture right now that is encouraging Christians to be quiet. And they'd like it if Christians just went to church at night and, you know, just kept things quiet. (laughs) And and Nicodemus, I think Jesus, in his conversation here at the end, in talking about whoever does good things comes to the light so that it may be seen that his works are done in God. He's encouraging Nicodemus, come out and say it, to to come to the light. And John 7, Nicodemus kind of takes a half a step toward the light and is like, hey, does our law judge man unless it hears him first? But he's not ready. But but at the death of Jesus, Nicodemus comes into the light. And, and that's an encouragement for all of us as well, because there's times where we're going to be afraid. There's times where we're going to feel intimidated. But we, like Nicodemus at the end, need to step into the light and let it be known where we stand. This was a really good study. We are out of time now. Jeff, thanks for that. Uh, really enjoyed that. Benjamin, thanks for your good comments. Uh, coming in and contributing those. Uh, Thanks, panelists, and uh, thanks, Drew. Any final things?